Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Education performance in developed countries, including the United States, is a mixed bag. That's according to the latest Program for International Student Assessment, PISA, a periodic project of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. In the United States, math performance by 15-year-olds was worse than in 2018, among the lowest ever, as a matter of fact. Reading and science held steady. For analysis of what the results mean, we turn to the executive director of Teach for America's D.C. region, Ryan Tariainen. Mr. Tariainen, good to have you with us. Thank you, Tom. It's great to be here. Tell us a little bit about the PISA assessments. These come out periodically, and they're done internationally? They come out every three years. Um, The PISA began in the year 2000. It's an international test. It's actually created in France predominantly. And what it does is it compares standardized test results in reading, math, and science across over 80 different countries or locations. In 2022, in fact, 620,000 15-year-olds across 81 locales participated in the PISA. And as you mentioned, the report, the results from those tests just came out on December 5th. So this is not a meta-assessment of results reported by different nations with different systems. This is 650,000 kids everywhere taking the same test. Yes, the same test in, of course, their national language. And interestingly enough, this test is really at forefront a literacy test, even when it's focusing on math or science. And the focus of the test does change every three years. It is still at its heart a literacy test. So this particular test that was taken in 2022, which was actually one year later than it should have been because of COVID-19, This test was focused more on math skills. But the thing that's interesting about the PISA math test is most of the questions that are asked of students are in written form. So they may have to read a passage or even a story and be able to take data or information from what they read in order to answer the math questions. So it's not a test where you're going to see a bunch of equations and kids are going to do computations. It really focuses on their reading skills at the same time, and also has them apply real-world solutions um, to problems that they may encounter. Now, the United States and the federal government in a number of different domains, including the education department, has been pursuing STEM and the idea of STEM, math and science. And, you know, those are, these are all math requirement types of topics. What should we take away from this in the fact that the scores drop so badly for that particular test in the United States? There's a lot to take out of it. As you mentioned, the scores did drop. In fact, they're 18 points lower this go around than they were when the test results were first released the first time the PISA was done. Um, Those test results were released in 2003. And so all these years later, and we're actually on average performing lower in math than we were in 2003. The other thing I want to mention before I get into that is that some people would look at these results and actually think that the United States improved, interestingly enough, because our ranking internationally grew. We actually moved up to being 26th in math, which previously we were in the 30s. Uh, So you may think that, oh, the United States did so much better. They're improving. And in fact, what we're seeing is it's just that other countries decrease their scores even more than ours. They may have been more heavily affected by COVID-19. The effects of COVID-19 are something that's very challenging for school districts to improve upon. So for instance, the hiring aspect of teachers is what's really, I think, affecting these scores more than anything, especially in STEM. To put this in, I'm going to speak specifically from 
my experience as a school and district leader in Washington, D.C. Hiring math teachers, STEM teachers is the most difficult out of all the positions. And it is especially difficult now because Generation Z, the generation who will be coming novice teachers uh, these years, when they major in STEM fields, they get offers for other types of work in other fields that are much more lucrative than teaching. Um, so it can be extremely difficult to recruit someone who majored in math or computer science or some some other type of science and to come into teaching when they know um, the income level that they'll be entering in is much lower than something that they could be doing otherwise. Um, and so that has been the biggest challenge for schools in the United States is actually being able to get STEM experts to fill these STEM classrooms. I can tell you multiple times we I've been in situ I have been in situations where we recruited a fantastic person who was passionate about education, really wanted to be a teacher, but did not necessarily have the strongest math background. And unfortunately, that was the position that was open. Um, and at a certain point, you have to fill that position and you may put someone in who's not the most comfortable with teaching math, but they do it because they really want to be a teacher. And you try your best to be able to build that person's skills to make them into the best math teacher they, they can be. But we're still, unfortunately, lacking people who come in on day one with expertise in STEM fields. And so that's really affecting our students, especially after the effects of COVID-19. We're speaking with Ryan Torreinen. He is executive director of Teach for America's D.C. region. He's also a former White House fellow with the Education Department. And is there any policy or operational change? I mean, the Education Department has permeated itself deeper and deeper into smaller and smaller aspects of public education over the decades. And public education seems to be getting worse and worse in the outcomes over the ages here. So what uh, could happen at the federal level to improve the situation, do you think? One of the things I learned when I worked at the Federal Department of Education is how frustrating it can be because there is usually all carrot and no stick is what we sometimes would say at the department. So education in the United States is very much controlled at the local level, at the state level, um, and very little of it, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your outlook, can be decided at the federal level. Now, one thing that the federal government, I believe, can do, and I do think that Secretary Cardona has addressed this, is that in the wake of COVID-19, one of the strategies that we know is actually having a strong effect in improving scores, whether in reading or math, is high dosage tutoring. That is pretty much a, a no-brainer, one would say. Like, oh yes, if students get more face time and that's independent or in very small groups with a with a tutor or a teacher, they're likely to improve upon their scores. And absolutely, it makes total sense. The problem was, where are the people, where is the money to fund this? Well, because of money that came out of the, the CARES Act, such as the ESSER fund, the Elementary and Secondary Education Emergency Relief Fund, and uh, the GEAR fund, which is the Governor's Emergency Education Relief Fund. There was billions and billions of dollars dumped into education the years of and following COVID-19. And a lot of that money could be spent on creating and hiring programs to provide one-on-one -on -one or perhaps three-on-one tutors for the students who had the most decrease in their math and reading. And we are seeing firsthand in DC, that is probably the intervention that is having the most effect on students. So I believe that the federal government could do more to put money towards or providing grant money towards creating and 
paying for these high dosage tutoring programs, especially in schools that suffered the most learning loss. Yeah, that's remarkable because you say that, you know, billions and billions and billions were poured into education during the COVID as part of relief. And yet look at the scores and look at the results, you know, at the local education level were pretty bad. And I think a lot of school districts are still digging out. So what you're saying is the federal government should redirect maybe its focus on where funds go in what educational function to actually have some leverage in making scores go up? Yes, absolutely. I think in that first round of over $20 billion going towards public education, the thing that we have to remember is very little of that was actually going towards uh, the education process. It was actually going towards refurbishing and remodeling buildings so that when students came back, uh, they would be able to function, they would have proper ventilation, uh, they would have all the PPE, and the sanitary aspects of the school to make sure that we weren't passing along viruses and diseases, um, since that was obviously becoming the focus of the world at that point. And so a lot of that money actually went into remodeling the entire buildings of schools, um, sometimes building entirely new structures. So that's where the money went at first. Yes, absolutely. And then after that sort of round of remodeling happened is when people started to focus more on the after school or during school programs that could improve on the education of their students. Unfortunately, like that's still in its birth stage, I would say, where it's still very, very new. So that's where I would invest more dollars right now. Yeah, because I guess it's easier to measure how many cubic feet per minute your new air equipment is moving or how many filters you installed or how many new buildings you put up than it is to measure education outcomes. That's longer and more subtle, isn't it? It is. And unfortunately, we were, you know, we were doing distance learning for a year to two years or longer in some places. And Unfortunately, in many of our rural communities, that wasn't really an option. They may not have had the infrastructure for internet access, for every student to have a laptop. I met superintendents from very small districts who really um, inspired me because they went above and beyond creating these mobile uh, Wi-Fi devices that were sent through with buses and literally bus drivers would park the, their bus in front of places where kids could work on laptops that were donated. It was amazing the things that went forward in order to meet the need at the time. So it just shows how resilient we are as a country and how inspiring we are for our students and our, and our children. And right now that everyone's back in the building, we need to be doing everything we can to put more teachers and more adults in front of kids to help build their scores. Ryan Tariainen is executive director of Teach for America's D.C. region and a former White House fellow at the Education Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the PISA results at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. 
Explain what that is and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week 
and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply. That's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it, and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so I've had to do my own self-reflection on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? 
Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins. 
who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.